0: I'm welcoming myself this is my first time here but if you are new welcome too, and welcome to those who have been here for many years so uh, this is the Lord's Day the Sabbath and uh, we take special delight in worshiping him today as a group of people assembled together in his name so I'm excited to be here my name is David Ely I'm the Furman RUF campus minister I've been doing that for about six years now my wife um, is Mary Beth and she's my better half she's back in Greenville with our four little ones um, and, uh, yeah, just, you know, I, I love being a dad, I love being a husband. I love being a youth basketball coach for the fifth grade girls basketball team at church. We're one in six, but we're going for most improved from beginning to end. That's what we're going for. So I'm, I'm very proud of them. What else do you need to know? Uh, I think very highly of Greg Skipper and John Boyd. And uh, even though it's my first time meeting most of you or maybe all of you here this morning, um, I've prayed for your congregation several times over the past several years, whether at Presbytery or uh, in, in my office at Redeemer, praying for local churches in our Presbytery. So it's nice to be able to see you guys. I think very highly of Greg, a sweet man. He's not feeling well this morning, so um, I want to let him know that we, we love him and miss him. And then also John Boyd. And now, John took offense when I said this the first time last year. I made the connection. Have any of you seen the movie The Expendables? OK, I said, John, I'm not saying you're expendable, but you remind me of the expendables. Those guys from the 80s who were like action stars who are still kicking it, you know, you and Dolph Lundgren and Schwarzenegger and Stallone and all those guys. And of course, if you know John, i always like, well, I don't really see that. You know, I was like, well, you should look in the mirror. You're a big guy with a lot of skills, a particular skill set. And um, so John and I are in the same prayer group for RUF every uh, training, which is uh, twice a year we gather together and we pray together for hours. And he and I are in that same group, so I feel like I know John well, I know the things that are on his heart, and he just is a, a, a real model for how to do longevity in ministry. Uh, whether it's youth or college ministry, it's often thought you have to be relatable, hashtag relatable, whatever that means. And it does help to be able to speak the language and to know what matters to young people, but I'm convinced the the older I get, uh, young people don't really change. Uh, Young people want authenticity, they want to know you, they want to know that they're cared for, and that you know what you're talking about. And John does those things very well, so just want to kind of publicly, um, not praise, but just be thankful and grateful for for Greg and John. This morning, uh, I'm going to look at Genesis 3, I want you to join with me if you would. I don't know if we have the scripture, but if you have your, your Bibles with you, or even an app on your phone, Genesis 3. And um, the reason I want us to be here this morning is because I, I pray by God's grace through the work of his Holy Spirit, through his word, that we would understand better why things are the way they are and why you are the way you are and why your heart longs for something better, but you don't experience it. And the arc of scripture of what was, what happened, what is happening, and what will happen. To understand that we're rooted in a story along with other people. When people say, you know, those are my people. Those are my people. Uh, Adam and Eve are our people. We're each other's people here today. We all come from this, and this is our collective story, the story of humanity, in a very real, earthy way. So I'm going to read Scripture, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into it, and we'll take the Lord's Supper here at the end. This is God's Word. Was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be de- desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this uh, morning. Thank you so much for even a, a dreary, cold overcast day. It's the day that you have made and your mercies are new every morning and we pray that you would sustain us today, that your word would empower us through your spirit who is alive and at work. So, Father, would you please be kind to us in Christ today on behalf of what he has done, not of what we have done, not of what our hands have done or not done, but rather because of what Christ has done for us, that today uh, what we think, say, and do may be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. All right, so um, there are a lot of feels in this passage. I work with college students, eighteen to twenty-two mostly. Some of them are twenty-three, but you know that's kind of the age they're in, right? And so they speak a, a, a similar language. And one of the things they talk about is, I get the feels. I get the feels. You know, they maybe an image on the internet, or maybe a story, or maybe a memory. But they'll talk about, I get the feels, and. What I want to say is this, this chapter is more than just a sort of meta story of all of Scripture. It's actually a story filled with feel, feels and with emotions. And to start that off, what I want to do, uh, one of my personal heroes and someone I long to be more like is a, a Christian psychotherapist named John Cox out of Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and uh, he was very helpful for us RUF folk about a year ago at training, talking about emotions. And he said this, Our emotions are usually the first sign of how we are doing. So obviously our emotions aren't the totality of who we are, don't define us, but if you want to know how you're doing, you pay attention to your emotions. And he said this, when I'm happy, you can think of this, to be happy is to possess what I love. To be happy is to possess what I love. To be anxious is to feel what I possess is shaky. To feel depressed is we lost possession of something that we loved. Anything about grief, same thing, when someone passes away. I hate it when the culture tries to dictate how we grieve and say, oh, shucks, they're gone, let's celebrate, you know. It's kind of this idea. There's a Christian celebration that we know we will see them again. But what I hate is it robs you of the opportunity, it steals you of the opportunity to lament, to cry out to God, and to remember your place in the story that this is not the way that he intended. Death was not something that he wanted for us. But, whether it's possessions or relationships or whether it's, for some of you it may be, uh, I, I don't recognize myself in the mirror anymore, I miss who I used to be. I miss what I projected, what I thought I would be at age 45 or 35 or 25. I did not expect life to look like this, and for whatever reason, I lost or we lost possession of something we loved, and that's the feeling of depression. anger what we loved was stolen from us think about possession not again materially but just what you have what you have what you hold on to what what you have going on to be happy is to possess what you love to be anxious is to have a possession that feels shaky to be depressed is to understand that there was something we had and now we don't have we lost something and then anger Is something was stolen from us. We no longer have it, but it was stolen. Furthermore, he talked about this shame is the experience of being exposed and humiliated, and guilt is our relationship with God is or feels to be at risk. I've always thought until a few years ago that shame was a thing that was a subjective experience of an objective guilt. I am actually wrong. I did something wrong. Uh, I was in the wrong. And shame is now I'm internalizing that, and that's part of it. But shame is much more systemic than that. Shame is uh, it's almost like a like a, a virus when you get sick, and your body has antibodies fighting it. It just kind of spreads. It's more it's it's more nuanced than that. And one of the things that I would describe shame as is that it's more than just the subjective experience. Shame says I am wrong. I can't be right. I can't anticipate something better. I'm stuck. But guilt is an experience I want us to feel this morning, just like we have a confession of sin. It's not just something that we do every Sunday morning or hopefully every day in our own life, but actually we need to think about guilt because guilt is what drives us to the cross. And that's what I want to hold on to right here as we transition to the text here because if we're afraid to admit to ourselves that guilt, that we are guilty... And we're afraid to admit that our relationship with God is or feels to be at risk. How are we going to be in a position to receive grace? And looking at the character in the heart of God is what I want you to see. Because it's not just what he does, it's how he does it and why he does it. And that's what I want to pay attention to. These three questions this morning have all the feels inside them. And, And maybe if you hear nothing else, I want you to understand this, that God is a feeler. If he makes you in his image, if he makes me in his image, okay, we're, we're not like him in a lot of ways. We are like him in some ways, right? Some of the attributes. There's no shadow of turning or changing with him. He is holy in all that he does. And who can search out his mind? He's God. But if you look at Scripture and you pay attention to the questions he asks, which reveal his heart, and you pay attention to his own emotions and not just the, the two-word uh, verse, uh, two verse in John where it says Jesus wept. That's true. He did weep. But it's more than that. It's much more than that. If you understand that God is emotional, that we, may, we are made in his image and we are emotional, if you understand that emotions themselves aren't an issue, I, I hope you can see that God this morning is actually much more emotional than the, than the man and the woman seem to be in their own sin, and their own objective guilt, and their own internalizing shame, that God is the one who has the feels. So the passage this morning, Genesis 3, 1 through 13, in the title, when God asks the questions, we have a lot of questions, don't we, right? And our questions reveal what we're thinking about, what matters to us. But what if God's questions reveal his own heart, too? So let's pay attention to that. Uh... Three points or three takeaways just based on the questions. The first question Where are you? Now, when I was growing up, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful uh, for my parents and for the churches I grew up in, grew up Southern Baptist, to uh, grow up in, in hearing the gospel. I did a WANA club and that kind of thing, and just blessed. Um, When I was 19, I came to faith and own faith in Jesus, I think, for the first time. There was a change there. that was more than just moral behavior, being the oldest oldest people-pleasing good child, right? Um, There's some fruit of the Spirit there. Um, But because I'm a sinner, like you, because I need Jesus like you, I grew up having a filter for when I looked at Scripture, or, or when I heard Scripture taught, And when I heard that question in Genesis 3, where are you, it sounded a lot like a policeman chasing someone down an an alley. Like, come out, expose yourself, hands up, where are you? In high school, there are things I did that I'm not proud of. I'm not laughing at them because they're funny. I'm laughing because I think, wow, I was an idiot. (laughs) And I remember I would always get nervous around police even when I wasn't doing something wrong just because I knew I had done wrong. You know what I'm saying? I could be going 67 and a 70 and I'm still nervous around policemen. And it's that kind of feeling of not police uphold justice, but I mean that you talk about the God of the universe, the God who made you. If he's saying, where are you? If you hear that as, where are you? And that changes things. But what if God in his character, which is consistent, is the one who's seeking out Adam and Eve, saying, where are you? You can think about this. Some of you are walkers or runners. Some of you are even marathoners. And for whatever reason, reasons unknown to me, you decide to put yourself through torture for fun. Uh, Just run for an extended period of time. Uh, But if you think about you having having a walk or a jog by yourself with a neighbor, with a friend. If you think about, say, running into a woman with her dog, her little dog. You don't even know her, but that's the route you take and say 845 on Wednesday morning, she does the same thing. You run into her by the same coffee shop or the same bend in the park. And you get used to it. She's not even someone you know very well, but you just get used to seeing her. Now, when she's sick or when she moves away and you don't know that and you don't see her or the dog anymore, you, you kind of feel the absence, even if it's kind of insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But you just you, you have a routine. In this passage, we're, we're to understand by the Hebrew, this is, a, this is a pattern of what God did. In the cool of the day, he would walk. And it's more than just, hey, I'm thrown off. I'm a, a creature of habit. I missed something. What's What's up? It's God longing for the communion he had with those he created. So the where are you is really, you could rephrase it and paraphrase it as, I feel the distance and I don't like this. Where are you? I miss, I miss, I miss you. Where are you? Now, the second question is interesting. Interesting. Because when he talks to me, he says, not just where are you, he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In other words, to paraphrase that, whose definition are you living under now? You describe yourself as naked. Okay, that's a new experience. That's something that's new. But who told you that? And then finally, have you done the thing I asked you not to do? In other words, who did you talk to and who did you trust? Which one of us did you believe? And then the final question, what is this that you have done? Now, to back up, I think we should understand that when the serpent, when the enemy comes to Adam and Eve, he is already trying to find a a sensitive point to get at them to expose a distrust and to actually get them to, to commit sin, to actually break with God, so to speak. And he's looking for a way to create a rupture because his whole MO is to undermine God and to be God, more God than God. That's who he is. That's what Satan does. But he comes in and so this is what he does. Now, pay attention to the questions that God asks and the questions that the enemy asks. The enemy comes out and says, did God actually say? And uh, if you have young people or teenagers or preteens, you know that subtlety. Did you actually say that? You know, it's kind of, did you, did you really say that? You know, it's, it's, it's not strong, but it's enough to just insinuate some reason to doubt. Did I hear that right? Did you hear that right? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said, the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Now, if you go back to Genesis 2, he didn't say that, that part. And way before the Pharisees in the New Testament, way before people after Genesis 4 already, there's a heart towards legalism. Legalism defined as practically in a relationship with God, I, I, I trust God, I want to trust God, but I don't want to lose it, right? Because guilt is, my relationship with God is at risk. So to keep that from being at risk, I'm going to go beyond. And if I go beyond and I'm hypervigilant, then maybe he won't leave me. Right, That's what legalism is. It is a, a decent pretense. Just like the best lies are half-truths, that's why legalism is so compelling, because it has an element in there of like holiness. Let's, let's do what he asks us to do, but you add to it. And already, so Eve, in a sense, is the first legalist. And what she says is telling about her own heart, and that's when the enemy goes, Aha, I found a weakness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push it in there. Neither shall you touch it. The thing that he has asked them not to do is compelling and beautiful. And there are things in our lives, as you know well this morning, and I know well, that are compelling and appeal to us. And to say no to those things means in a practical way we have to trust God. Sin is not something as simple as like, hey, just don't do it. It's what's behind that. What do I really believe? Besides the, the social shame of of not cheating on taxes or not, you know, doing ninety and a fifty and getting caught and you know people seeing you and saying, hey, was that you that zipped through? You know? But just we we want to um, we want to be right. Neither shall you touch it. It's appealing, but what is more appealing? Do you trust my heart? Can you trust me? Or are you going to break with me because you think I'm hiding something behind my back? And I will confess to you this morning in my own sort of uh, confession of sin that every day in ways big and small, I practically, in thought, word, and deed, suspect that God really has it in for me. And I feel so uncomfortable with maybe a lack of finances or the shame of having a, a, a medical bill that's two months late and I'm going, oh, I thought I paid this. I don't, where are we going to find this? That in those everyday ways, I think, God, if you really cared, I wouldn't be in this situation. And it's in those moments that I want you to know, just with me from this passage, that God cares for you more than you possibly understand. He actually cares for you better than you care for yourself. I want us to believe that but when they're having this dialogue and the serpent says to the woman you will not surely die he's not just saying to god actually say he's saying you know what hey full stop all the way here he did he lied to you because you will not die and the best lies are half-truths you can recognize a bald-faced lie but a compelling half truth is something that'll get your attention because there's something in there you go that's that feels true that seems true there's a part of it that's true and here's the problem he says when you open when you eat of the tree uh, of this fruit he said not to do actually you'll know good and evil you'll be better off if you do this god's trying to keep you for whatever reason i'm sure he's a great guy but he doesn't really understand how this works i do trust me now, if you go down And you see in the the following verse that she did eat of the tree. And her husband did also, but guess what? Their eyes were open, just like he said. But the difference is when they opened their eyes, they knew their nakedness and shame. They were not like God, knowing good and evil. They were not more godly. They were less human. So to understand that. They were tricked. She lied to herself first, and then he lied to her, and she believed it. Here's what I want to say. Any of y'all, uh, y'all know about Brene Brown? She's a speaker and writer and teacher. She does some TED Talks um, out of Baylor University in Texas. And this is something I think is really helpful for, for us to understand about shame and blame. She says that blame is the chief way we discharge our discomfort. When you and I feel uncomfortable, we're looking for someone or something to blame outside of ourselves because it feels uncomfortable. And that's where it's good to help, differentiate between guilt and shame. But this is about to, to get real for Adam and Eve because what happens is they have done wrong. They know they've done wrong. God is calling out to them, looking for them. As, and as we're about to see in verses 8 to 13, especially, the feels kind of amp up because God is the feeler here, the emotional one, wanting and desiring to fix what is broken. And Adam and Eve are outside of their, their pay grade now. They don't know what to do. And so this is the issue, this is the crux here. They heard in verse 8 the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as was his custom. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, how about this? Think of people you love. Everybody loves somebody. It could be your children. It could be children who are estranged from you. It could be uh, wayward stepchildren. It could be uh, students. It could be classmates, teammates. It could be professors, whatever. Think of people you love. Doesn't it hurt like crazy when they're afraid to be with you. Doesn't it hurt? Don't you feel that? I'm not talking about fault, whose fault was it, but just the the dynamic here that the people you cherish no longer want to be with you. It hurts. It's out of that strife and out of that difference and out of that loss if you think about something that was lost i think god is feeling sad we had something and now it's gone it's different and here's the thing about adam and eve you've ever been in a relationship where there's someone that you looked up to maybe even put on a pedestal uh but but just to to you they were perfect now that's not true nobody's perfect but you just implicitly trusted them. If they asked you to jump, you'd ask how high, right? Now, if someone comes in and they say, you know, introducing just a little bit of a doubt, she's really, you know, you don't know her past. I've been there. I've seen her. Like, she, she used to be way worse. She's not. I mean, that's great she's like this now, but just, just know she has her triggers too. And if you push her, she's going to do that too. Now, she, to you, has not faulted you or done you wrong, but all of a sudden, what are you thinking? I don't know if I can trust her. So something was stolen from God, in a sense. Now, he's sovereign, but I want you to understand relationally, the reason that God has a righteous anger is out of love. I made you. I love you. In love, I did this. You disobeyed me, which was wrong, but it hurts. And I'm angry at the serpent. I'm angry and rightfully angry because it was stolen. It wasn't his, it wasn't yours, and it was taken. Because what we had was built on trust. And so, out of that pain, I believe, in verse 9, God calls the man and says, Where are you? Not where are you? I always think about Christian Bale's Batman. When he had that first movie, Batman Begins, and that trilogy, I thought, I, I'm an adult, I'm a grown man, and I'm scared of Batman, you know, when he talks like that. And I don't, you know, I, I did high school football, I was that, that guy, rah-rah, basketball, and track. I, can, I know how to yell, and get yelled at. I don't like the way this guy talks. So again, it's not, where are you? I think it's a, where are you? There's a sadness, there's an ache. He says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. Now... When your mind is scattered, just, just pay attention to the fact that Adam didn't, he didn't even answer the question. Okay, And if you're a woman here and you go, there's a man I love, uh, dating, married, my, my, my father, father-in-law, whatever. This is a man thing. He, he can't even answer the question. That's humorous, right? I'm trying to be humorous. But it's funny because God asked Adam the question, and he's disjointed. You can tell he feels the, the, the ache here, too. He feels the separation and he's trying to gather himself, what is the one thing he asks, where are you, three words, where are you, what's up? And this is, sounds like someone who, whose phone died in downtown Anderson, and now they don't have their Uber app, and somebody's going, where are you, and he's, you know, he's going, well, you know, here's, here's the thing, here's the thing, I'm sorry, uh, my phone died, so I don't have an app, I don't know, I don't know how to call Uber now. Um, so I had to talk to this really nice woman named Letitia. She had her charger. I just needed five percent, so I had to go in. And then you know I had to pay for coffee because I got to get the charge. I don't want to be cheap like that. So I went in, and Letitia gave me her charger. Sweet woman, like she actually lives down the. Block. And they're going. That's fine. But I was just wondering where were you because I was waiting on the corner of, of this you know, Main Street, and you weren't here twenty minutes ago. And you're, you know, that's fine. But in other words, why are you answering like that? Because you feel oh, you kind of feel disoriented, right? Now he's feeling disoriented. And he can't answer, where are you? Because what he says is, I heard the sounding in the garden, and I was afraid, which is a new thing. Because I was naked, which is a new thing, and I hid myself, which is a new thing. These are all new things. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The answer ought to have been the serpent, and yes. Yes. But this is what the man says. And by the way, these first two questions are in the singular. The plural is y'all. Or if you're not from the south, use guys or you all or whatever. The places where you say pop and soda and not coke. okay? But down here, y'all. Now, it's, it's to you, not y'all. It's to the man. And the third question is singular to the woman. So Adam, if you knew the tree of which I command you not to eat, the man said... The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, what I just said about Brene Brown, that quote, that blame is the chief way we discharge our discomfort. Do you see that? I know I'm wrong. I did something wrong. And uh, I'm, I'm hurting here. But you just got to think about from my perspective, God, this wouldn't happen if you didn't make her. I'm sure we've been fine. She's the problem, not me. And honestly, you're kind of at fault here too because you're the one. I mean, if you didn't make her, it wouldn't be like this. Now, I'm thankful that in Scripture there's not a verse in Proverbs or Isaiah or somewhere, as song, song as it says, and biblical masculinity is dot, 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 and biblical femininity is dot, dot, dot. But I think reading narratively and understanding not to a person necessarily, but just the template is here, the template for the rest of humanity that men, including myself, have a difficult time owning appropriate responsibility, okay? I'm not talking about shame, I'm talking about men, and you see this especially in the last few years in, in our culture uh, through media and reports. There's there's a feeling of right kind of anger towards men in positions of power, maybe not all men. I'm, I have to tell my Furman students, I'm not saying all men are terrible, that's <laughs> not true. We're all sinners, that is true, but... The way this works out is that the man blows it with his, with his task, with his covenantal headship, with his responsibility, to out of the love that he feels and he has felt from God, he is able to give freely to his wife. And instead, what he does is he says, uh-uh, it's her fault. And the third question that God asks, I want you to pay attention to the way that the woman answers. I'm not, again, I'm not saying men are terrible and women are great and she did it right because Eve was the one who, f- who fell and Adam was with her, complicit. Okay? But you can almost imagine her head down, avoiding eye contact, a woman who knows she's done wrong and is afraid. The serpent deceived me and I ate. That's the right answer. Now, he answered correctly in the sense that it was truthful The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. But that sounds different, doesn't it? Than the serpent deceived me and I ate. Why am I saying this? Because I want us to understand Scripture matters. It's our story and how it applies to you this morning and me, man, woman, or child. Even outside the marriage relationship, even outside the marital bed, why is it hard for men and women to do life together? Because as sinners, as people, who feel the discomfort, who feel the distance. All of us are walking around with our discomfort, and it is our sin nature to go, I'm just looking for somebody to blame. I need to, because it hurts. And the best lies are half-truths, and there's a compelling part of that. Because if a man has done you wrong, how could you not have that bent towards, I'm not going to, like, what's appropriate to be vulnerable and not put myself in a position of hurt? Why would I do that? Sin begets sin, and it's painful, and God knows that. So, if you're a man this morning, what I want to say to you is, you're not terrible. <laughs> what I do want to say is, look, men, look me in the eye when I say this. It's, it's in our DNA as sinners, and, and Christ has redeemed us. That's our identity now. But sanctification is a real thing where we still have that sin nature that's operating. And the penalties away, penalties bye bye. But the, the real presence of sin and its desire for us is very much still there. And I want you to understand our natural bent is gonna be to give away responsibility when we've done wrong, not to own it. And the reason that is true practically is because it hurts. And men are told a lie in our culture that, that, that men feel no pain, they display a little emotion, and when they do, Anger is justified, even if it's an outburst of anger, because that's strength. I want you to know, and I want you to understand that I am, I, I am along with you. I'm sorry for the, the, the damage our culture has done in telling you what a man looks like. And what Scripture tells us, what a man looks like different, across different times and places and cultures and personalities, different personalities is that a man is the one who grows into his responsibility accepts it and grows in Christ likeness and goes my faith in God is expressed practically speaking by the way that I go I see myself and I have blown it but the lord has told me to lift up my eyes to him because that's where beauty's found that's where truth is found and if I'm doing this and I'm looking down and I can only see what I've done wrong and what hasn't done right, I want you to understand that's exactly what the enemy wants for you. And It's the same question you got with uh, Adam and Eve this this morning in the text. Who do you trust? Who do you listen to? Who do you trust? Do you listen to him or to me? What God says to you as a man and as a woman is to be in Christ is to be a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, even when the old is still there. But you're working from a place of approval in Christ, not for it. You don't have to work for it anymore. Because you can't get it in the first place. You think about it practically when something just is broken, natural. Who who broke it? Who's the responsible party? You move forward, right? But in this scenario, man and woman they sin and it's something that's broken that they cannot fix. God himself has to come in and fix it. So I want you to watch what happens because I didn't mention verse 15 on purpose because I want you to feel the weight and the burden of the distance emotionally and the hurt. But in verse 15, he addresses the serpent first because God is righteously angry because you stole something. They they sinned, they did wrong. I'll address that in a minute. But you stole something. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So you'll, you'll nip at the heels. It'll be pain. There'll be pain. But, but my offspring shall crush your head. And by the way, childbirth will be a little bit different now. But Eve, I love you. And one of the things I gave you, if not to a person, then just women in general, the, the stewardship and the beauty of having children, I want you to know that you're not damaged goods. Do you hear that? He's promised an offspring. It would be the seed of David, the royal seed of David, Jesus Christ coming flesh, God coming flesh. But he says to her, You are still beautiful to me. The thing that I cherish the most, my own son, I'm not going to just give him in a vacuum. I'm gonna, he's going to come through your womb. God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, he's going to live in there for a little bit. our bodies with scar tissue, our bodies with uh, fatigue, with Crohn's disease, with Lyme disease, with thyroid disorders, with uh, the way we've we've harmed our bodies and the effect we're still recovering from with that, that that he goes, you're still mine. You're not damaged goods. And my plan is not thwarted because what I'm going to do is something more beautiful than you can do on your own. And I need you to trust me. I, need, I want you to trust me because I miss you. And I will move heaven and earth to be with you again. And even when you try to run from me, I will not let you get past my grace. Because I know you. I know you're weak and frail. But you're beautiful to me. The woman answers truthfully, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Three questions but I pray by God's grace you can see more the beauty in the emotion behind God Almighty. He's a God who redeems and restores and reconciles. And he doesn't do it in the vacuum outside of you. He works in and through you. Whether it's the offspring coming in childbirth through the woman. Or whether it's Adam's now work that is cursed. It still is going to yield some fruit. It's just going to hurt. There's going to be some thorns and thistles. There are going to be some, some things that are hard. They didn't have to be hard, but are now hard. But it's a promise saying the way things are right now, I want you to feel sad because of what was lost. The same guy, John Cox, I'll end with this. The same guy, John Cox, said um, that the two holiest emotions, the two most sanctified emotions are gratitude and grief. Grief looks back to what was lost and gratitude appreciates the present and anticipates the future. Because hope is anticipatory in nature. Name of this church, Living Hope. Real hope is something that just, it doesn't just say, I, I hope like we used to say, I, I hope for the best. I, I wish, basically, living wish. It's not living wish or living desire or living one. It's living hope. Hope is anticipatory based on a present experience, based on past experience. And the past experience says to you and to me, we did wrong, God made it right, and it's not always going to be this way. And that's what practical faith looks like this morning. Uh, let me pray, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper, and I hope you'll forgive me if I don't do it quite right, because it's my first time, and communion is kind of one of those things where it looks like it'd be an extra point in football, and you only, you only tell when somebody misses it, they shanks it left, right? You go, man, that guy had one job, and you don't realize everybody's trying to block you, and you've got a snapper, and it's got to be right there, and the, place, the placeholder's got to spin it right, so uh, in a humorous way, hopefully you can forgive me if, uh, if we botched the logistics behind this at least, but we're about to take the Lord's Supper and enjoy his presence uh, with us, looking beyond just elements, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time, thank you so much for your word, thank you for being emotional. We often say emotional is a bad thing, oh, she's being emotional, she's a wreck. But God, what we're, we want to say is that you are holy in your expression and feeling of your emotions, and thank you for creating us, not just for obedience and compliance, but the reason behind this, out of love, the heart of love, with emotions that we get to experience and to express back to you in worship and in everyday life. So we thank you for the, the gifts, the good gifts you've given us, and please, Lord, would you increase our faith and therefore uh, help us to, to grow our hope, so to speak that we would not become jaded and embittered, but rather we learn to grieve, to lament, but to expect that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>